I do uh, look through these last two messages on men and women God has used, I want to talk to you today about somebody whose name you likely know, but that's probably it. I want to talk to you about Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards is considered America's greatest theologian, the greatest theological mind to ever come out of the Americas. He's he's actually also considered one of the most intelligent men to have ever lived. Today, he is still celebrated at Yale University uh, for his writings, not necessarily because of his theology, but his mastery and understanding of philosophy. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor. Now, you can find Puritans in almost every denomination. They weren't really their own denomination. Uh, really, a Puritan was simply somebody who looked at the church and said, there's too much of, enter whatever you want to put there, uh, it could be everything from saying, you know what, there are too many ideas from outside the church uh, making their way in. Uh, it could be something as simple as golden offering plates or candles, and they would say, we don't need those in church. That's really all a Puritan is. Now, they did get the reputation of being more or less a stick in the mud. Uh, People who were not fun to be around, kind of pastors who were always speaking on doom and gloom and judgment. But that actually couldn't be further from the truth. Puritans were known to write about and preach about their love for life. They loved the arts. They loved uh, reading. They loved pleasures like eating. And they also loved the topic of love. Jonathan Edwards especially loved to talk about love. Now our text this morning you see here in verse 5 is a rather simple idea. The goal or the end of the commandment or the idea there, the goal of our ministry is so that people will love. To grow a people who love others that's the idea here so he's saying sunday school sunday morning uh sunday night wednesday night is about the goal is to create or grow a people who love now first timothy is really all about the reality that there are counterfeit forms of christianity and there were those out there trying to peddle these counterfeit forms of christianity And what the Gospels do, or what Jesus does, and what Paul is doing here is saying, the way you tell the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit is by the way the people love. So are we a people who love? Jonathan Edwards called love the chief affection of the Christian. The Bible would agree. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that it is the chief affection. And so the question we want to answer here is, how do we have authentic Christianity and how can we have it by the way that we love? How can we be Christians who love others? Three points for you this morning. Number one, Christian love, Christian love, comes from a faith-transformed heart. Christian love comes from a faith-transformed heart. You see that first here, that this love, the aim, is to be be a people who love with a pure heart. You want to consider here that the Bible does not have a lot of positive things to say about your heart. 
The Psalms and Proverbs tell us that it is in the heart where we plot to do the wicked things we do. We're told in the heart is a heart that is so wicked, the prophet said, we don't know the depths of the wicked possibilities that the heart can come up with. Romans tells us that it is out of the human heart that idols are created. The Bible tells us that it is in the heart where we ultimately reject God. It is in your heart where you find the excuse you need to sin. It is in your heart where you decide that something God has said is wrong is okay for you. And so the Bible makes it clear. The only hope you have is by a transformed heart. And of course, the idea says this is possible. Your heart can be transformed. In fact, in the Old Testament, God says there's coming a day when I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Several times the psalmist will ask God, God, transform my heart. So the question that is out there for Timothy and for us as a church is, how does transformation happen? Well, in verse 4, the Bible talks about those who came along and said that heart transformation happens through myths and fables. Think about it as the idea of thinking that heart transformation comes via inspiration. These mythologies and fables were patched together in order to motivate people to behave. Think, is, think of uh, the nights you would tell your child in bed the story of the boy who cried wolf. The idea there is you're trying to inspire your child to do what? Don't lie. Okay, eventually, if you do it enough, people aren't gonna, uh, are going to believe you. And so we inspire them not to lie. And so there was a group saying that's how the heart is transformed. In verses 6 and 7, we're told there's also another group that says that the heart is transformed by keeping rules. It is the keeping of the law. So their idea would be if you have an immature young man, perhaps a, a, a drunkard, and you put a suit on him, and then you have him go to church, and then you put him somewhere and helping with Awana, that's how you get transformation but in both cases the apostle paul and more or less is going to say this is hogwash this is not christian teaching and in fact a variation from what is actually taught so how does transformation happen well by faith abraham believed god acts 15 9 god purifies the heart by faith in christ so your heart can be transformed but how does it happen by hearing, believing, and trusting what God has said. And what God has said is that transformation comes by hearing and believing and trusting in Christ, a faith-transformed heart. Now, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather was a pastor. Jonathan Edwards' father was a pastor. And so there was really never any doubt what kind of, line, or what kind of work Edwards was going to go into. As I mentioned, he's considered one of the smartest men to ever live. He attended Yale University at the age of 13. Upon graduating, he stuck around and taught for a little while. Eventually, he was asked to come and be the associate pastor at the church that his grandfather pastored in Northampton, Massachusetts. By this point, Edwards was a Christian, and he went to go and be an associate pastor at a beautiful church. The church is actually still there today. You can see pictures of it. The inside of that church is absolutely gorgeous. And in that time, it was absolutely full. And so he went to go and help pastor a church that was very popular and very beautiful. 
But then his grandfather died and he took over as pastor and he became immediately disillusioned. Writing that this beautiful church, with its high attendance, was in poor spiritual state. And so Jonathan Edwards focused all of his preaching on how the heart is transformed. By faith, through faith, in Christ. But then slowly but surely something began to happen. Edwards began to notice little differences in his people. And then suddenly there was this unexpected conversion. And then there were a few more. And then a few more. So many now that Edwards began to write to the newspaper in Boston about what was happening. And in reading that, a number of pastors in Massachusetts began to follow his lead. And they started seeing conversions. And this all led to what is now called the Great Awakening. Now during this Great Awakening... There were those who came along and said, you know what? We need to make sure all of these new converts are following the rules. That's how we get real change in these people. We've got to make sure they've got all the rules. And others actually came along and said, you know what we can do now? We can throw out the Bible. We have the Spirit. What we need to do is now every Sunday tell them great inspirational stories. Keep them motivated. Have them in, in a pep rally. And if you can imagine, that this, this massive awakening happens in Massachusetts, and then George Whitfield comes along and it begins to spread all over New England. And Jonathan Edwards did everything he could. He wrote articles, he wrote pamphlets, trying to remind people that transformation of the heart only comes by faith in Christ. And that anything else was not transformation, just a cheap knockoff. Leads me to point number two. Not only does Christian love require a faith-transformed heart, but number two, Christian love requires a good conscience. Christian love requires a good conscience. So you see, that's the next thing. There is love of a good conscience. Now, we usually talk about having a clean conscience. A clean conscience is somebody who has a, a conscience that doesn't bother them. They don't feel guilt. They don't feel shame over decisions or actions they have taken. The idea of a good conscience is that you have the ability to make a decision, to take an action that won't result in guilt or shame. So that's what you need. You need a good conscience. But once again, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say or a lot of good things to say about your conscience. The Bible says, actually, your natural conscience will lead you straight into guilt and shame. For example, in the book of Proverbs, we have a young man who says, there might be a lion outside today, so I think I will not go to work. And what Proverbs is making is that his conscience is shaped and formed so that he would be lazy. In another place in Proverbs, we have a young man who finds out that a woman in his neighborhood, her husband is going to be gone for a while. And that tempts him into this adulterous affair. That's where his conscience led him. In other places, we're told that this conscience has the ability to declare that God does not exist. A conscience that leads or comes to decide to do all sorts of evil. Unfortunately, Jiminy Cricket was wrong. The conscience should not be your guide. Now, because the conscience is so defective, the Bible says it must be reshaped, reformed. 
There's a number of analogies Scripture uses for this. For example, in uh, Colossians, there's the put-on, put-off principle. It's the same idea, the reshaping of the conscience. In fact, in verses 8 through 9, here in chapter 1, Paul says this is actually part of the use for the law of Moses, to poke at your conscience. Saying, basically, that the law is a tutor that comes along and says to you, if your decision-making is leading to murder, if your, your actions require parental disobedience or bring you to sexual immorality or cause you to enslave people or go into lawlessness, your conscience is broken. It's not good. Or, if you have a conscience that is more afraid of people, If you have a conscience that is sensitive to the words of people, easily manipulated by guilt mongers, those who have shame culture, it too is a reminder that the conscience isn't good. And the Christian is called to have that conscience rebuilt by the word of God. To be trained, to be shaped, redressed, if you will, by the scriptures. Philippians says this is how we become a people who know how to love with knowledge and truth. Now, when you have a sudden mass conversion in your church, an immediate need arises, as Jonathan Edwards found out. Well, the Bible does say that when you are forgiven by grace, when you are washed in the blood of Christ, that your past no longer defines you. Your conscience is washed clean. But it does need to be rebuilt. And so, there came a great number of conversions, and Jonathan Edwards realized he was going to have to reteach his people. Now, it was during this time that Edwards wrote what is perhaps his most famous essay, Religious Affections. In summary, uh, Edwards says, you know what, we have feelings, emotions, and he says those are rather fleeting. But what we really have are affections, that's what is stable. A person might come along and say, this is what I believe, but their affections really are what run their life. If you want to think of it this way, he's using that word affections as to what is it that inclines you to do what you do. Or another way to say it is you could ask yourself, what are my convictions and then what really convicts me? And what Edwards was trying to do is point out that there, during this great awakening, there was going to be those who were going to uh, praise the Lord. They were going to take up religious activity. They're going to talk about God. But all of these things are actually poor evidences that somebody has been converted. Genuine conversion is found in the change of affection. There must be new knowledge, new convictions, a fear of God. In other words, Edward is saying real evidence of conversion is a good conscience. And the greatest change, as Edward would write, must come in the area of love. 1 Corinthians again tells us that if the affection of love is not affected by our faith, then all other affections will be empty. Jesus says this is how, this is the the sum of all religious practices is in love. I've already mentioned Philippians says if we're going to love and knowledge and truth, there must be a change in conscience. So Edwards would say one must bind your conscience to what God has said. 
One must exercise your conscience in the things that God has spoken. You must have a good conscience. So we have this this, uh, transformed heart, this, this rebuilding of the conscience that leads us to number three. Christian love is identified by unfeigned faith. Christian love is identified by unfeigned faith. So this last one, as you see in the King James there, is faith unfeigned. Now, some of you might have a translation that calls it sincere faith. So what Paul's pointing out is that there is possible it is possible to have a faith that is sincere and a faith that is insincere. Now, in the context here, Paul is talking about false teachers. So those men who are placing all the emphasis on fables and genealogies or all those guys who are trying to put down the rules are men who are not sincere. The idea being that they teach what they teach and they do what they do for two reasons. The first is they want people to agree with them. They teach what they teach. They don't really care for the soul. They simply want you to think what they think. Their second motivation is they want followers. They want the status. They want the money. They want the women that come with having followers. And I love in verse 6, the Bible says, all of these ministers have become nothing but empty noise-making. We have our English, we, we have a Greek word where we get our English word, idiots. That's all these men are. You can see perhaps why this would be in a letter to a young pastor in his church. The amount of temptation there would be to, to gain a following instead of making disciples. The motivation to minister in a way to get people to kind of take your side. In Philippians, this is described as politicking and is expressly forbidden in the church. Unfeigned or sincere faith. When you as a Christian do what you do and say what you say with the desire that the person you're ministering to loves God and loves their neighbor. The goal of every sermon, every Sunday school teacher, every Awana leader, every leadership decision should be out of a heart, a love to have that person love the Lord their God and love their neighbor. It's an example that is built by grace. You see, God saves the Christian only because he is kind. God does not save you because he needs something from you. He does not save you because of something in you. And so we we minister not needing anything from somebody. And we minister not wanting anything from somebody. This is love from unfeigned faith. Now you can imagine... That being at the center of the Great Awakening brought Jonathan Edwards a great deal of attention and fame. And it did. But actually, this fame would prove the sincerity of Edwards' faith. That his motivations were not to gain followers. His motivation was not to be famous. As you would expect, because of the Great Awakening, his church grew. And it grew quite rapidly. And as I've already said, he realized he was going to have to reteach some of these people. And so Edwards began a series 
about how communion was something only Christians should do when they're right with God, the very thing that is taught in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, we're not really sure as to why, but the people of Northampton Church resented Edwards for teaching this. And after serving for their pastor for 22 years in 1750, they voted him out. Now, this led to what is known as the Stockbridge years. In 1751, Edwards moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, to a Native American outpost. There he ministered to a church of less than 50 and to multiple tribes of the Mohicans and Mohawks. Now, the the government's purpose of having this outpost was to try and convince all of these tribes to fight with them against the French. The man who ran the outpost, uh, outpost actually complained about Edwards, thinking he was too smart, too old, too un- unable to be understood, could not learn the language, and was by far too unfriendly. But for Edwards, Stockridge was an answer to prayer that he had prayed when he was a young man. See, Edwards had always had a passion to take the gospel to the front lines. One of his heroes was David Brainerd, a missionary to the Native Americans. It was never the goal of Edwards to be at the center of some great religious awakening. He was never looking to be invited to speak at all of these great colleges as he was. was never looking for famous friends. Edwards simply wanted to study, understand, and preach the gospel of grace, and he was willing to do it where he would never be known. You see, Edwards, right after he left Northampton, had been offered a quite prominent position in a church in Scotland. But Edwards chose to go to Stockbridge. And while he was never able to learn the language of the tribes, he, it drove him to work as hard as he could to, to reach them in every way he could. A ministry of sincere faith. In 1757, Edwards was asked to come and be president of Princeton, quite a Interesting turnabout, seeing he was a Yale man. Edwards didn't want to go simply because he loved the work he was doing, and he didn't think he should because of his poor health. But they badgered him enough that he accepted the call, arrived, and died a month later. Now today, there are countless classes and books on his life. Yale and Princeton offer classes about him devoted to his writing. You can even go to to a number of universities and get a degree in Jonathan Edwards' philosophy. Some of the most well-known pastors today say they model their ministries after Edwards. But everyone agrees, whether it's a pastor or a scholar or an expert, the topic that Edwards always wanted to talk about was love. Christian love should be different than any other kind of love. It is this love that Jesus says will mark us as his followers. A love that can only come forth from a transformed heart by faith in Christ. A love from a pure heart, made pure by the blood of Christ. A love that requires a good conscience, a Christian to have their affections, their inclinations bound to what God has said. A love that is identified as a love that has no other motive than for to minister to a person so they will love the Lord their God and their neighbor. It lacks political ideas or selfish ambition, a love modeled after the grace of God. This is the love that is to be the goal, the aim of every ministry here at First Baptist Church. Because when we love, the Bible says it clearly, when we are a people who love, it results in the uplifting and glory of Jesus Christ.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the life of Jonathan Edwards. So much more we could say, so many more writings we could talk about. But Lord, the simple topic of love. Lord, may we never try to transform our lives through inspiration or through rules. May we seek the transformation that comes by faith. Lord, may we seek out a rebuilding of our conscience, tied, trained, built up by your word. So that our inclinations would guide us into truth and righteousness. And I pray, Father, that this would be a place, this church, these people, would be identified as people with sincere faith, a love that comes from sincere faith. We desire nothing more for them to love you, to love their neighbor, to know you through your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.